The Bob Murphy Show, episode 153. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Mark Brennan. Let me read a little bit of his official bio. Mark G. Brennan is an adjunct associate professor of business ethics in the Business and Society program at Stern, where he teaches both undergraduate and graduate students. So instantly, that's the Stern School of Business at NYU. Professor Brennan received his PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania. His dissertation explored the activities of American Protestant missionaries in Cuba between 1898 and 1950. His research interests include U.S. diplomatic and economic history, 20th century global politics, and the history of classical economics. Prior to joining the Stern School, Professor Brennan worked as an equity analyst and portfolio manager covering the financial services industry for several asset management firms and hedge funds. And before his career as an investment, or sorry, as an investor, Professor Brennan was a CPA at Pricewaterhouse, working for a variety of banking and financial services clients. All right, so you guys may have heard me refer to the elusive Von Pepe, and he's the guy who recommended to me that I get uh, Mark Brennan on for the, uh, the show. I, I met Brennan, uh, I think I was at grad school at the time. I had, yeah, I went and I was because chaos theory had just come out. I gave him a copy. And so Brennan is certainly into libertarian politics. And he just had a very interesting career working as a, in the financial sector, hedge funds and such, and then deciding to get a PhD in history. And so we talk about that and his career change. Uh, he was in the thick of things during the housing bubble. We talk about that. And we also talk a lot about it because he's a professor of business ethics, Milton Friedman's famous dictum that all a, a corporation should do, you know, doesn't, it shouldn't engage in making donations to curry favor with the public about what a good corporate citizen is. Nope, just maximize dividends for shareholders and then let them go donate money to whatever causes they want. And so we talk about that as well. One final caveat before we dive into the interview just want to warn you folks, there was a glitch with the recording. Uh, long story, had to use a different software package when doing this interview. And the guest's audio was not saved. And so there are times my sound technicians did what they could, did their magic. But there's points in this where you're not going to be able to hear the guest because on my end, I was moving the mic around or doing something and <laughs> and my volume was too loud and drowned out the guest from the the version that we had to rehabilitate. So anyway, sorry about that. Hopefully it won't happen again. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mark Brennan. Well, Mark, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks for inviting me, Bob. So you had uh, have had an eclectic career so far. Um, just to sort of give the broad outlines of it, can you just explain, because uh, you've, you've been in different areas. I know the financial sector, uh, t- getting a history PhD, teaching at NYU, and also being a trenchant critic of U.S. foreign policy and writing for conservative outlets. I know you also wrote for lurockwell.com for us. So can you just give us a, a, a 
quick version of, you know, how did you, how did you get into all that stuff and what was the sequence of events? Sure. Uh, I graduated from college in 1986 and went to work for Price Waterhouse because I thought that that would be a great career as an accountant. Did the CPA exam. And I remember uh, the first red flag I got in uh, public accounting was during training, they, uh, you know, we, we, we had a training class of like 80 people and they brought us into a room and they brought, they, every, every day they would kind of parade one of the partners in front of us who would talk about how great it was to be an accountant. And I remember one day a, a young partner came in and he said, folks, I got to tell you, you have picked the right career. The best benefit of being an accountant and working here at Pricewaterhouse is that you will get the cheapest life insurance in the market. And everyone in the room was just, you know, started singing hosannas and saying, I've reached the promised land. And I sat there, you know, said to myself, I'm 22 years old. And I said, wait a minute, like the best benefit of this career option is cheap life insurance. I said, I'm in the wrong place. I, I don't want to be here. So that was. Can I stop you? Was that because actuarially people doing accounting are so safe? Like, yeah, I think they're, I think they're you're not going to get any STDs, right? That's... <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't go skydiving on weekends. Right. They're on weekends. I think it's just a really risk averse group, mm -hmm. you know, uh, people who study accounting tend to be risk averse. And one of the principles of accounting, you know, one of the main principles is, is the principle of conservatism. Mm -hmm. You're always kind of overstating expenses, understating revenues. Right. So it's, it's that crowd. So, you know, I looked around the room, I saw 80 people who could not have been happier. And I said, you know, I want to make money. I want to have like a fun life. Mm -hmm. Life insurance. I'm not even buying life insurance. I don't care what it costs. Mm -hmm. So that was my first red flag. So I did accounting for a couple of years. Uh, and got very bored with it. And the whole time I was kind of intrigued by the stock market. I was working at Pricewaterhouse in the crash of 87. I saw that happen. It just made me that more excited to learn about the stock market. So I went back and got an MBA. Um, lucky for me, I was um, already a CPA when I went to business school. I went to business school at Cornell. Uh, and I actually chose that school for two reasons. Number one, at the time, the business, everyone cared about the Business Week survey. And Cornell was ranked number four that year. It's plummeted ever since then. Probably uh, with me and it's an alumni base, it's not going to do much better. Uh, but more importantly, uh, I was really excited about Cornell because uh, as a CPA, I, they, were, they said, you don't have to take any accounting courses, which I was very excited about, not to have anything to do with accounting ever again as long as I lived. So I was able, and this was just when the wall fell, so this is 1990. So I get to Cornell and I thought, what will be the language of Eastern Europe now that the wall has fallen? Um, and everyone told me German. So I took... German and fell in love with German uh, while I was doing my MBA. And uh, while I was doing that, I also figured I should. So can I stop you? Because you thought you were going to be doing a lot of business with people or you thought you were going to like physically go over there? I thought both. Okay. You know, business opportunities, the wall fell. There's this part of the world that's got to become uh, economically modernized. Mm -hmm. what, what skill sets would you need to go over there? I thought German would be the thing. Um, mm -hmm. That proved to be totally wrong. But I absolutely fell in love with German. Mm -hmm. I just enjoyed studying the literature and the language. Um, and so I actually continued that after business school. But uh, I I'm sorry to keep it wrong, but I wanted to make sure. Why was it wrong? Because there weren't that many opportunities or because you didn't need to know German to do business over there? Yeah. It, it, Russian would have paid off much better. Okay. Uh, everybody speaks English. And mm -hmm. you know, there's the old joke. Um, the only difference between uh, Germany and the United States, you know, they're very similar countries. The only difference is... Uh, everybody in Germany speaks English. So if you can... Um, <laughs> you know, can I tell you my thing? You know how they always, and this ties in, maybe we'll talk about form, but how they say like, 
you know, oh, it's it's a good thing that you know the United States had FDR at the helm. Otherwise, you'd all be speaking German, like to the people in the U.S. And my thing is like, no, not even the Nazis could have gotten Americans to learn a second language. Give me a break. Right. But, yeah, yeah, we 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 are. If they're like the one kind of sine qua non of an American is being a monoglot, right? Yeah. Just do other languages. Uh, I love languages. It's my thing. Um, so I'm I'm probably not patriotic in that sense. But anyway, so I'm studying German. I'm thinking, you know, this will be if I, if I want to go to Eastern Europe or go to Russia or whatever, German's the way to do it. And I had gotten that advice from a bunch of people. But while I was doing that, I also thought that I could should kind of find, burnish my uh, or, you know, work on my knowledge of European history. So I took a class with Walter Lefebvre, uh, who is arguably the most important diplomatic historian um, of the 20th century in the United States, or let's say maybe post-war. Um, and I say arguably, there are other great ones out there. He's super important. So I took a class with him, um, and it whet my appetite for history. So uh, I left Cornell in 1992, went to work on Wall Street, loved it, uh, was having the time of my life, um, was a long-term value investor for a bunch of asset management firms. Mm-hmm. So I would um, you know, buy a stock and then wait for it to go up over the course of five years. And I got very bored. I, 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 get, I get bored easily. Can, can I stop you for a second? So people hear that phrase a lot. So what, I mean, I know, but for the benefits, what, what does that mean? What's a value investor? And then is that opposed to like a technical investor? Is that, is that what the dichotomy is or? Sure. So the, the, the big dichotomy and it's religious, mm-hmm. I can't even talk to the other religion. There's growth, mm-hmm. there's value. I'm a value guy. What value does, the example I like to give is the example of snow shovels. Um, if you go to the hardware store in January and snow shovels are $20 each, uh, and then, but you don't buy one, and that night it snows two feet, how much do you think snow shovels are going to be the next day? What's your guess? What, what, what's, what's the hardware store going to charge you? They're 20 bucks. People. Are we in a place where Cuomo is the governor? Because they're not going to go up at all. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Okay, yeah, yeah, no. In, 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 in the real world, you know, in a rational. In, in Rothbard land? <laughs> yeah, in Rothbard land. They're, they're going to go up a lot. Go up a lot. Yeah. Right? So what a value investor does is he goes to the hardware store in August, and the hardware store has a bunch of shovels down in the basement um, that are taking up space and, you know, causing a cost of carry for the hardware store owner. And he goes to the guy in August and he says, hey, you got any snow shovels? And the guy says, yeah, they're in the basement collecting dust, driving me crazy. I'll give you all of them for 10 bucks. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what a value investor does. A value investor buys it for 10 bucks in August and then he waits for the snowstorm to come in January and sells them for 60. Mm-hmm. Now, you could buy them uh, the day before the snowstorm for 20 bucks. Pray, you know, get down to your knees and pray that it's going to snow that night and be able to sell them for 30 bucks the next day. That's what a growth investor does. Mm-hmm. A value investor runs around trying to buy things when nobody wants them. So when, when everyone's selling, that's when a value investor is buying. And when everyone's buying, that's when a value investor is selling. Mm-hmm. So my number one value investment right now um, that's out there, and I'm, I'm building on my success with uh, Detroit real estate. You know, about 10 years ago, you could have bought a house in Detroit for a hundred bucks. The city was just right, really giving right, right. So I always tell my students, and I had one smart student who took me up on this. He said, I don't have a summer internship. What should I do? I said, well, I'm a value investor. Go buy houses in Detroit. Scrounge up as much money as you can. Buy a house for a hundred bucks. What's your downside? And he sat yeah. there for a second. He said, my God, it's a hundred bucks. I said, yeah, if there's an earthquake and Detroit, you know, falls into what, Lake Michigan or whatever lake it's on, um, your downside is a hundred bucks, right? So 
you know how much interest he could have earned on that? That's a yeah. joke. <laughs> Racist points, right. Thanks, thanks, thanks to the accommodative monetary policy. Um, so limiting the downside with a lot of upside. So the kid goes, he buys a bunch of houses in, in Detroit, and he says, you know, uh, so when does this take off? I said, it doesn't need to take off. If you sell somebody a house in Detroit now for a thousand bucks, that is a steal. You know, buying a house for a thousand bucks. So the kids sold all the houses each for a thousand bucks, which is still giving them away. But he made ten times his money mm-hmm. one year. Like that's what a value guy does. Mm-hmm. Right now, my and, and I can I can contrast that with Ken Griffin, the head of Citadel, just bought an apartment, a condo in New York, pre-COVID. Uh, I think he paid two hundred thirty-eight million dollars. So what's his downside? $238 million. How much is that going to go up? Is that apartment going to go to a billion dollars? I doubt it. You'd probably doubt it too, right? Mm-hmm. Growth guy, in order for a growth guy to make money, that's got to go up. I don't see that going up. And I'd love to know what that thing would be trading at right now with COVID. Probably nothing near 238. So there's a downside. So my big value uh, investment recommendation right now, you can buy an entire city block, entire city block with like a skyscraper, apartment buildings, uh, uh, ground floor retail space for 10,000 bucks in um, Caracas, Venezuela. There's a lot of hair on that uh, and it might not work. Uh, but if it does work, you will be the landed gentry of South America, right? Um, and even if things just start to turn around and your $10,000 goes to a million for a piece of real estate that before all the nonsense in Venezuela was trading for 30 million, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about a home run. It might never work, but what's your downside? Right. It's like the, um, I used to work for Arthur Laffer and one point, I forget what he was even talking about. He, he was pushing something and one of his clients or something pushed back and said, no, that's a terrible thing. It couldn't be any worse. And so he, of course, came back and said, right, that's the perfect time to buy when it can't go down anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and I love the story uh, in the 2008 financial crash, uh, Warren Buffett, you know, Every company was looking for his imprimatur. If, if he would buy securities in any company, it would have just kind of been the vote of confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so Goldman Sachs was kind of down on its knees, begging Buffett to buy Goldman Sachs stock. I think he brought I think he bought preferred stock. But they had trouble reaching him because during the crash, they were calling him. And do you know where Buffett was when they were calling him? No. It's so great. The Mises Institute? No, he was a fairy <laughs> queen with his granddaughter. And he was just letting the blood flow. He's them nah. to me. And when they come to me, that's when I want to buy their stock. But you know, when 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 Goldman is not coming to you, right, right. Want to buy it. When they're down on their knees begging you, that's when you say, Okay, let me think about this. So he was a dairy queen with his granddaughter, and he said, I'll call them back on my time. Uh-huh. That's funny because pro- people probably would have thought, oh, every you know business person was scrambling around and you know doing lines of cocaine to stay up for 72 hours. But no, he was just, I'm fine. Yeah. Smart guys, every, if you remember, everybody was in the fetal position. In 2008, in the fall of 2008, spring of 2009, we were all laying there in the fetal position saying, mommy, make it stop hurting. No, it's never going to come back. And Warren Buffett was saying, the longer these people lay in the fetal position and then just start puking out assets at pennies on the dollar, I'm getting more and more excited. Mm-hmm. That's what all paid off in spades. Look what the stock mm-hmm. market stuff since 09. Okay, I, so I do want to come back and spend more time on those, but I did inter- I interrupted you with the the discourse on what you meant by value investor. So you said you you were out into value investing, just were given the brief, just so people know the timeline of how you came to. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing value investing. And again, I get bored easily. 
And so I would sit around um, uh, doing my value investing, buy a stock and wait for it to go up over the course of five years. And waiting for it to go up over the course of five, five years was really boring. I started teaching at Cornell uh, and I loved that. And I was getting increasingly bored. So I actually uh, at night, I went to NYU and got a master's degree in history, which I had always wanted to pursue. So I was doing that to keep myself busy. And then kind of the biggest turning point in my life. Now, is that, I know you and I had a, a lunch or something when I, when my book Chaos Theory came out when I was in grad school still. Is that is this the same time period when you were at NYU or am I getting mixed up? Roughly, I, I was there. So I, I did it. I did kind of like the, uh, I did it. It dilettante as a dilettante. Okay. One course per semester, and it took me five years. Okay. I was doing it for fun, purely for fun, mm-hmm. uh, purely as a as an end in and of itself. That you know, I, I didn't care where it was going to go on my resume. I was just doing it to learn more about history. Right. Uh, but I really fell in love with it, and I really enjoyed it. And I was getting increasingly bored at work. Uh, and I worked about five blocks from the World Trade Center, uh, and on nine eleven. Uh, you know, I had a ton of friends in the building from having grown up here and buddies from high school and college. One of my best friends from college was on the 105th floor. Uh, I worked very close to the two companies were, that were at the top of the building. They both lost two thirds of their employees. I just lost tons of friends. And I sat there and I said, you know, that could have been me. I'm sitting at this desk. I'm as miserable as can be. Uh, it's time to change my life. So that's when I said, I'm going to go get a PhD in history because that will make me happy. Mm-hmm. I know I like teaching. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't get enough of teaching. So. I uh, took the GREs, applied to a bunch of PhD programs as as an out of the mold student. I was 42 years old, uh, and I was lucky enough uh, to land a spot with Bruce Kuklick, Jonathan Steinberg, and Walter McDougall, who are all pretty important historians at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and went down there and did a PhD in diplomatic history, which uh, is really on the outs. Uh, we don't study diplomatic history anymore because we're too busy studying grievance history and all these things. Mm-hmm. So, Diplomatic history is belittled as chaps with maps. Um, I, that is an honor. Uh-huh. Chaps with maps matters. It's what uh, people read when they go to Barnes and Noble. They look for the books about chaps and maps. Uh, people care about geopolitics. People care about diplomacy. The only place they don't is in the academy. So uh, I'm fighting a losing battle here. Um, but luckily for me, uh, I was able to then um, parlay my PhD uh, at Penn into a teaching position non-tenure track teaching position at NYU in the business school. Uh, and people tend to be a lot more um, sane in business schools than in arts and sciences mm-hmm. or in the other schools. So I'm really happy to be at Stern where the students are off the charts, smart, smart. My colleagues are smart. Everyone is um, sane. Uh, we don't, the, the illiberal uh, cancellation culture has not bit us the way it's bit other people. And most importantly, uh, the school allows me to teach diplomatic history. I teach ethics. I teach writing. I teach um, consulting. Uh, I teach a smattering of courses. And the school is totally open to me teaching diplomatic history and economic history, which was my minor field in my PhD. So, uh, and, and most importantly, there's huge demand from my students. So last semester, I did an independent study with one kid. Fifteen kids showed up for it. So I turned my economic history and diplomatic history course into independent study with one kid into a course with 15 kids. Uh, and I, hey, hey so you mean like, so just to understand, because one student was working with you and said, hey, I really want to focus on this particular niche area. And you said, sure. And then what, his classmates heard about it and said, hey, that sounds interesting. Can I sit in? That's what happened or? And I said, you know, I, I, I had said to my current students, I said, hey, if anybody's interested, you know, this is what I'm doing. 
And a lot of them said, wow, I wish I'd known about that sooner. My schedule said, but 15 of them said, okay. And even funnier, uh, I was, I flew down to Palm beach for, um, Christmas break last year. And I was reading foreign affairs magazine. And this gentleman on the plane said to me, you know, why are you reading that? And I always take that as a challenge. I said, Oh God, here it comes. You know, this is mm-hmm. somebody who's more concerned about, you know, transgender friendships in revolutionary America or some, mm-hmm. some historical topic that, that is the rage in the Academy right now. And I said, uh, I, I do it professionally. He said, really? I read it too. And that, so I knew I had a kindred spirit. Uh-huh. And the guy was with his wife and he said, where do you teach? And I said, at NYU. And he said, can I come to your class? <laughs> and, and, and I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, and his wife said, no, 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 he will come. I said, I want him to come. Like, I'd love to have, you know, mm-hmm. somebody older who, you know, because I make a lot mm-hmm. of jokes and I make a lot of cultural references that are lost on my students. Um, I, I now am at the point, this is terrifying. I make reference to Archie Bunker as oh. one of the earlier deplorables. <laughs> but the last, the last two years, I've asked the class. I, you know, I didn't. I, I make an Archie Bunker reference. I get blank stares. Then mm-hmm. I say, um, "Has anyone ever seen the show All in the Family?" Not a single hand goes up. And then I say, "Has anyone even heard of the show All in the Family?" Which was an important cultural touch point. Right, right. That, that thing, you know, set a lot of our cultural right. which we're dealing with today. No one in our class. Uh, has even heard of the show. May I May I just try to help you recalibrate? For a while, I got big laughs by doing a George Costanza impression, right? Jerry, George is getting very angry, right? Just kill, because, you know, I apparently I have a, a, a resemblance to the man. And I did that once. We were, it was a Mises event for a high school thing. And I got up there and I did it thinking like, oh, I better not talk about praxeology too much. Let me just kind of be funny, you know, fun Bobby, uh, friends reference. And I did that and, you know, it was, eh, it was okay. And this guy comes up with his daughter afterward and he goes, hi, Dr. Murphy, we really liked your thing. And I was telling my daughter that, yes, there was this show Seinfeld and you did a very good impression. And she's like, oh yeah, I'm sure it was great. Like Seinfeld is, you, and you're talking about Archie Bunker? No. Yeah, yeah, no, forget <laughs> him. So I, I couldn't have been happier than to uh-huh. have this gentleman in my class because, uh, you know, so th- these kids that I have in my diplomatic and economic history class, are the ones who are genuinely curious. But to have somebody kind of vouch for the experience of somebody who, you know, watched, he, this guy was old enough, you know, to move through the Vietnam draft, to have somebody in the classroom who could kind of vouch for it, not right. Right, has these crazy memories. That mm-hmm. was, you know, or if you want to talk about, remember those gas lines in the 70s? And everyone's like, <laughs> what? You used to put gasoline in cars? We just charged the battery. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's been a blast. And, and uh, you know, I, I love Stern. Uh, the kids are great. They're, they're so smart. Uh, I also teach graduate students. I teach ethics to the graduate students. They're smart, too. Um, but I spend most of my time with, with undergrads who, uh, you know, NYU used to be a commuter school. Uh, I'm sure you know the history. My father went there uh, in the 1950s, got his MBA. Um, and, you know, everyone was a commuter. And now it's this on fire, super smart place. Mm-hmm. So, I, I love having an intelligent audience and it's a 20 minute subway, subway ride from my apartment. That's great. Okay. So j- just before I forget uh, an anecdote on the, dis- the difference between the graduate school of the arts and sciences and the, is it the Stern school of business? Is that the technical? Okay. At, at NYU folks that we're talking about. So when I was there, you know, so I was getting my PhD in economics and I was in the, the graduate school of arts and sciences. And that was like the more theoretical one as opposed to like, you know, the real world. And it was hilarious. Like the, the turf battles and the, you know, the uh, elitism, I guess. I don't know what you would call it, but of course each camp thought their slant was better. 
And so we, we were at something and it was like, it was like a conference. Like it was a, I know what it was. It was um, a conference on economics, but it was being hosted at NYU. And so like I was sitting around a table with some of my professors. So I wasn't in class with them. It was like, we were at something. So like I felt free to be more like loose with them. And so it was our micro professor. And there were people in the crowd that were from the Stern School. And, and somehow he made a, a reference to, oh yeah, the people over there at the Stern School, you know, they, they, where they think it's important to look at like the, the Monday effect on stocks or something like that. You know, he was making fun of like that the Stern people would look at papers talking about little trends and how to, you know, stock prices and what they... And so then I said... Well, you know, in fairness, probably they don't think it's a big deal to let, or think it's very important to build a model of uh, the economy that consists of one agent who lives forever because that's what we were doing in our program. You know, and I thought, I honestly thought, Mark, that he would be like, yeah, I guess, you know, to each his own. And he goes deadpan, goes, well, they should. Yeah. In other words, like... <laughs> people, people are blinded by their ideology, right? And, and not open to discussion but, you know, ultimately Stern is a business school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I am I am lucky in that I we, we have this. I work in this really weird department. It's called business and society, and um, it's we kind of give the kids uh, you know a, a taste of the liberal arts is what we are teaching them in my department. So uh, before we unleash these kids onto the business world, we give them some humane learning so that they can mm-hmm. kind of at least an awareness of ethical issues, some history, some writing. Uh, and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm 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 blessed to be where I am because there are no, there are no history jobs right now. Well, I mean, is it worse in history than in other areas, or aren't you? I mean, because in general, there's always this thing of like people have alleged there's a, a glut of PhDs, you know, for the last ten years, as far as I know. It's here 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 here's here's the statistic on history that will knock your socks off. Uh, 2018 was the first year um, since they've been keeping statistics since like turn turn of the century, 1900 that bachelor's degrees awarded um, to history majors dipped below 2%. So fewer than 2% of kids are majoring in history. Mm-hmm. English and philosophy are even worse. So when we talk about a PhD glut, I know like, you know, 38% of kids are majoring in economics and there still is a PhD glut there, but there are jobs. Mm-hmm. You open up the back of uh, the history journals and there will be like two jobs listed. And by the way, not for guys who majored in chats with maps. It's for mm-hmm. the other stuff. Um, and so kids aren't even taking history. They don't care about it. Uh, the departments are in a panic. Classics, philosophy, English, all the humanities are going on the toilet because all you hear 24-7 now is STEM, STEM, STEM. I like to remind my STEM colleagues, um, you know, uh, the, the STEM people will drive us into the dark ages, but we need the humanities people to, to, to tell them when they're doing so, right? So like in China right now, they're breeding monkeys with mental illness, which um, we don't really need to do that, and that's kind of driving us into a dark age. You need the humanities people to remind them uh, that there is more to life than just kind of material um, change. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, let let me uh, let's see here. Why don't we? Before I keep going, how I know you are familiar with the Austrian school and libertarian. You might not use the label directly, but how did you get that component of your worldview under your belt? Uh, I read a lot of Rothbard, mm-hmm. you know, when I was trying to figure out where, what I should think about the world. Um, I stumbled upon Rothbard. I don't remember where, probably, uh, there was, there was a place called, uh, laissez faire books. Yep. There was a branch in New York and there was a branch in, um, San Francisco. <laughs> I, 
So my, my big awakening uh, in, in 1986, I had just graduated from college. I was working at Price Waterhouse. I thought I was as smart as could be. And I saw uh, an advertisement. Uh, it was probably a national review or something for Charles Murray's book that, was, that had just come out called Losing Ground. So I stomped over to uh, laissez-faire books down in the village uh, right by NYU. And I walked in and there's this uh, overweight guy with this scraggly beard. And I walked in and I said, um, hi, I saw your ad for Charles Murray's book, Losing Ground. I'd like to buy it. And I, you know, I'm in a suit and I thought I was important. I was 22 years old at a job at Pricewaterhouse and I was just, you know, I was just it. And this guy looks at me, you know, totally disheveled, had like food in his beard. And I'm kind of looking down my nose at him and he says, you want to read Murray's book? And I said, yeah, I'm here to buy it. And I just wanted to buy my book and leave. And he said, how can you possibly read Murray's book if you hadn't? And he started, started rattling off you know, the historiography <laughs> of economics and public policy. And it was this moment. It was like this epiphany. And I said, oh, my God, I don't know anything. And this guy just like, you know, just taught me that I know nothing, despite the fact that I have a college education. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an awakening. And I just started reading like a maniac. And I would go back to the bookstore and I got Rothbard, you know, and then, you know, you, Rothbard makes a reference to a book. You buy that book. And I did that. I would love to find this guy, Bob, because mm. I had met this guy. I could be like just your typical pulsing moron walking around thinking he knows everything. I owe my intellectual life to this guy for that moment where he just <laughs> put me in my place and right. I owe everything to this guy. I've actually tried to look it up. I've, I've looked into the history of the store. I've looked into uh-huh. who's there. Um, I got to find this guy. And unfortunately, libertarian with who's disheveled with a beard and who's willing to just tell people they're stupid. That doesn't narrow it down. You know, we, we <laughs> <laughs> I basically described all of yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I owe like my intellectual curiosity. I literally owe my intellectual curiosity to that guy. Huh, that's great. And what's funny is too, like, that's not the normal way of customer service. You know, when someone comes in to buy a book, you don't start insulting the customer. And yet he, he did you a service there. Yeah. Well, you know, and by the way, it's laissez-faire books. RIP. So maybe, you know, maybe the market did decide, right. maybe, you know, put enough people in their place. I was receptive to the message. Mm-hmm. I remember when they went out of business, I would go to San Francisco on business trips. I would go, I would go early to San Francisco and go to their store in San Francisco and come back with like an enormous bag back when you were allowed to carry things on a plane with right. being you know, strip searched. I'd come back with this enormous bag full of books from laissez-faire books in San Francisco because the New York branch had closed. This is before, you know, mail order took off. So, mm-hmm. uh, that, that kind of exposed me to Austrian economics. You know, you read a book, you like it, you look in the bibliography, you read books out of there. And um, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't consider myself um, uh, able to discuss it or explain it, but it's, you know, if, if you put a gun to my head and said, pick a school of economics, hands down, that's the one I go to. Okay, great. I was, what, with learning German, did you ever read any, any of the Austrian works in German or is that, was that too technical? Uh, way too technical. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I did read a lot of books in German. It, it's German is a hard language. <laughs> and so I, you know, I read novels and they take a lot. I can't imagine trying to read, you know, uh, Rupka in, in, in. Mm-hmm. I always could t- like in German, it would just seem like it would just be one big word. Like in English, it would be a phrase and word. They would just keep making it a bigger word. And then, and then a verb after, you know, I'm, <laughs> and I'm looking for the verb. The whole time. So yeah, just wouldn't happen. Okay. Why don't we, uh, Talk about the, I want to make sure we get this in the, the 2008 crash. So did you see, I mean, for example, like I was pretty bullish. I was working for an employer who was, and then I left. And then in the summer of 2007, 
when I was on my own and I was looking at things, like all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, like I hadn't been paying attention to interest rates and, you know, geez, if the Austrian business cycle theory is correct, we are in line for the biggest crash since the early 80s. And, you know, and that that ended up happening. So um, that was one area where I did think the Austrian thing gave an insight. And I'm wondering, did you, I, I think we were chatting a little bit about this beforehand. You you had a sense something bad was coming, right? Yeah, actually. So the part I left out of my my long-winded, boring story was that uh, I was an investor. I, I invested in banks. That was mm-hmm. my specialty. Okay. So I would go and meet with managements. I'd been meeting with managements from 1992 when I started in that job, uh, right through when I went to Penn um, in 2006. And I watched things get uglier and uglier and uglier as time went on, especially in the um, on the credit side of it. You know what, what banks were lending and to whom. And I can remember the insanity, you know, building up to 08. I can remember going to banks. Uh, I'll tell you, Washington Mutual might be the best one, which no longer exists. And they would tell me, you know, we've got this new system. Uh, people can just come in off the street, uh, no ID, no proof of income, no job. And we give them a mortgage. You know, we've got these risk models that show that, you know, that, that we can construct a portfolio of, of, of mortgages to people with no income, no job, no proof of anything. Uh, and it works. Yeah, and it worked, you know, as long as the Fed was cutting rates and inflating a bubble, this housing bubble. Uh, and, and you would hear stories, you know, people who just weren't qualified to buy houses were buying houses. And every bank I would go to, I would say, excuse me, but this is insane. And they, would, they literally would say, you don't get it. Like, you don't get it. You're stuck in the old ways. And I would sit there and say, yeah, I might be stuck in the old ways, but this is going to collapse. And I, I started... You know, I started losing my mind thinking, holy cow, this is, you know, this force has been going on for a decade. It just keeps going. Maybe I am crazy. Mm-hmm. And I had the internet bubble, you know, pop in 2000. Um, but I held my ground and I said, this is complete insanity. This is, this can't go on. You know, it's just, you can't keep lending money to people with no jobs, no, no proof of income or anything else and expect that they're going to pay you back. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and lo and behold, you know, the party did end, but I watched it. I, and you know, there's a bunch of reasons for this. And one of the things that I harp on with my students um, is the short term, the short term horizon that all corporate managements in the United States have. You know, United States corporate managements, uh, C-suite, they are the nightmare that uh, Plato taught us about in the Republic. They don't think like monarchs, you know, uh, or Hans Hermann Hoppe, right? Mm-hmm. A monarch thinks, what am I going to hand off to my grandkids? And he cares about what he's going to hand off to his grandkids. And so he looks longer term. He doesn't think, what's this quarter going to be like? He thinks, what am I going to leave for my grandchildren? There's, let me take the long-term perspective. Let me invest. Let me care about you know, the environment. A corporate CEO uh, is looking at this quarter's earnings. How can I maximize this quarter's earnings? With, and at, at the longest, his horizon goes out till December 31st, which is when he gets his bonus. So as long as he maximizes each quarter's earnings, which is not looking uh, treating, treating this business entity like a long-term project, uh, as long as he maximizes his quarterly earnings, that will sum up to one year of great earnings. But, you know, that was in, in, in the early 2000s, that was done by just making a lot of mortgages, by growing the balance sheet, making a lot of mortgages. Oh, if they go bad in, in 10 years, I won't be here. I'm going to make my bonus now because uh, I only care about the short term because I'm a small D Democrat, uh, you know, appeasing the crowd of Wall Street analysts and investors from mutual funds. And it blew up in our face. And Plato taught us that that was going to happen. You know, democracy devolves into what he called ochlocracy, which we know better as mobocracy. The oclos was the mob in Greek. So, you know, we didn't act like monarchs. Um, corporate America doesn't act like monarchs. And by the way, look at who does act like a monarch in the business world. Warren Buffett, right? 
He cares about what he's going to leave his grandkids. Jeff Bezos cares. You know, Jeff Bezos lost money forever. And people thought, oh, it's never going to work. Not only did it work, he's the richest man in the world. How about Elon Musk? Is Elon Musk looking at this quarter's earnings when he's talking about putting a man on Mars? No. And who's getting rich? They are. Who is kind of treading water, spinning, and watching their stocks go sideways? The rest of corporate America who's cared about this, who cares about this quarter uh, above all else. So it's something that drives me batty. I'm trying to inculcate a sense of long-term stewardship in my students. I'm spitting into the wind. But, you know, we as a nation, this isn't just corporate America. Um, look at how our government constructed, right? Your congressman has a two-year time horizon. Your senator, oh, they're going to fix it. Give somebody a long-term time horizon. Your senator gets seven years. You know, the, the deficit didn't, didn't accumulate over two years or seven years. It accumulated over longer than that. It's going to take longer than that to fix it. But we have a structural problem where we can't because the horizons of our elected officials are too short. Okay, there's a lot there. Let me, let's focus for a second on the, um, you know, the liar loans and all that stuff. So putting aside, you know, the ethics involved, it does seem, let me put it this way. When I was a young, you know, budding free market economist guy reading Rothbard or whatever, if some socialist came along and said, oh, capitalism, you can't have just the unfettered market when it comes to like mortgage lending, because then banks would just be, fall over themselves to give loans to people who don't have a job. Okay. I would, yeah. yeah. Let me stop you right there. Yep. Okay. Mr. Socialist, we have anything but a free market. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's your socialist policy that caused the biggest problem, uh, federal deposit insurance. So you and I trot down to the bank and stick our money in the bank, right? Mm -hmm. And how much do we care what they're lending it out to? Not one iota. Right. The socialist policy, which is federal deposit insurance. They could be lending that money to fur-bearing trout farms, right? That they're just going to blow up tomorrow and nobody cares. You're covered. You're safe. You could not care less. So this idea mm -hmm. that there's an unfettered market mm -hmm. you know, where banks are lending, it's totally not fettered because you and I and every other American with, with money in the bank could not care less what the bank, what the risk profile of the bank is because we're insured. The government has through a socialist process come in and remove and mm -hmm. create an enormous moral hazard taking all the responsibility for you and me to go in there and say, wait a minute, where's this money being lent, right? So right off the bat, you can tell the socialist to stick it in his ear because it's not an unfettered market. Mm. In fact, it's government interference that drove so much of this. Okay, so that that's good. <laughs> so you're- no, wait, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm kind of like rabid, you know, doctrinaire freed market guy. Uh, I, I, I see right. regulation. I also know where regulation actually causes more problems. Mm. So I want to- you know, I want to. I want to get to the. I, I'm a common good guy. I want to get to the. I want to improve the common good. Right. Uh, sometimes we need regulation. Sometimes mm -hmm. we don't. Right. But you know, knee jerk is the free market guy is going to say uh, it was caused by regulation, and the socialist guy is going to say it was caused by unfettered capitalism. The two of them need to wake up. Right. So, th and that's what I'm trying to do here is to to narrow in on specifically. So yes, you've identified one reason, like a normal check that would be there in a truly free market is that the people, right? You say right now, just make sure the listeners understood your point. The the regular people who have checking account balances with banks, what you do when you pick a bank is you look and see like, oh, is there a monthly service fee? Or do I get a free toaster? Or do they give me, you know, extra perks when I spend money using the debit card? You don't look at their portfolio to see where have they invested their funds. Is this a safe place? Because like you say, FDIC is there. Absolutely. So, so, so by the way, so every American can put on his hair shirt and say, and, and, and take a bow and say, I caused the financial crisis because I didn't care. I just put my money in the banks. Mm -hmm. I fueled the fire. I just said to hell with it. 
Lend it to whoever you want. I'll give you a great story. While this was imploding, when it was really exploding, the week that Lehman collapsed, uh, you know, the, the maximum amount of money that the government would cover in your bank account was $100,000. I was at Penn, you know, taking classes in the PhD program that had nothing to do with anything important, right? And the mm -hmm. world's imploding. My wife was working at Goldman Sachs and she called me up and she said, listen, you need to go to a couple of banks in Philadelphia and open some more bank accounts um, because, you know, we're going to get hosed because we have more than $100,000 in the bank. We need to spread this around a couple of banks to get more insurance. And I, you know, I said, oh, I don't have time. You know, I'm, I'm studying the French Revolution. And, you know, <laughs> it's like typical PhD nonsense. Um, but, you know, I woke up and I said, all right, I'll do it. As I was like getting in a cab to go do it, the government announced that they raised the cap to $200,000. And I didn't need to go do it. So I said, hey, who cares, right? Mm -hmm. Just leave money there because now we've got more insurance and the bank's rent. We're covered. That was the worst thing the government could have done, right? Yeah, sure. It might have prevented, prevented a, um, runs on banks. But that's exactly what fuels it. So now I was, I, you know, somebody who knows about banks, I would have looked around like which bank is least likely to collapse when they put my money there. The government took away all that incentive. So there you mm -hmm. go, Mr. Socialist. There's your unfettered free markets. Totally mm -hmm. screwed thing. Okay, so that's one element. Still, though, one would be surprised that banks are going to lend money to people who, who they know are lying on the application. So to, am I right? I, one thing that I thought, you know, when I was ex post trying to figure out what the heck happened is that they a lot of the originators of the mortgage weren't sitting on them. They were selling them off to somebody else. So is that part of the story? Yeah, yeah. Fannie Mae, right? Mm -hmm. They bundle them up into securities and sell them off. So now you're not even going to bear the risk of loss. Like, this is mm. insane, um, which, by the way, that's fine as long as the people who are bearing the risk of loss know enough about what they're buying um, and they didn't care. So you've got banks who are making loans, making a lot of loans because they get a fee. Right. And we got to we got to boost up this quarter's earnings. So let's make as many loans as we can. And, oh, look, fee income grows and our balance sheet temporarily grows. That all signals future higher earnings. Our stock goes up. I, as CEO, get more money now. Let's 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 not keep them on our balance sheet because deep in, in in what in their little teeny hearts that these bank CEOs had, it's little <laughs> heartless hearts. They knew that they were writing garbage. Mm -hmm. um, let's get it out of here. So they packaged it up into a bunch of securities and sold it to a guy running a fixed income mutual fund who his main goal was to you know get the highest yield. He didn't care about risk because he needed the highest yield because that would determine his bonus for this year. So he's buying garbage, right? And then it explodes in everybody's face when, when, when people can't make their mortgage payments. And everybody goes, wait, what happened? Oh, it was the free market it mm -hmm. in many respects. But it also was because of interference. And most importantly, because everyone was acting on incentives, which were, I want to maximize my bonus this year. So let me just keep this, you know, furnace roar. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're, we're pushing it down. So, oh, the reason the originating banks could get by with it is... They, they weren't sitting on it too long. They're sending, so then you, you push back the explanation. Okay, well then why, where I'm going with this is it seemed to me like a big component of it was you got these rating, ratings agencies given, you know, AAA rating to stuff that clearly should not have gotten such a rating. Yeah, but who's their customer, right? Mm -hmm. agency's customer. The rating agency's customer, he was bread I eat, song I sing, right? I work for Leon Cooperman. He used to say that all the time. The rating agencies get paid by the issuers of the bonds not by the buyers of the bonds. So that's like me, um, you know, opening a restaurant and I pay you to review it, right? Your review, uh, if I'm paying your salary, you're going to write a review. I could be serving dog food and you're going to say, 
this is the greatest restaurant ever. You want an independent reviewer to go in. The rating agencies were completely corrupt. They were anything but independent. They rubber stamped whatever the banks wanted to put out, whatever bonds were being issued, and people bought them. And by the way, the guy running the mutual fund, he was a smart guy, right? He had a PhD in, in finance from MIT. He knew this was a game. But again, he wanted to produce the highest yield he could. Why? Because you and I and everybody listening to this podcast was out there saying, I want to invest in the highest yielding money market fund. Which one is it? Oh, it's that one run by that MIT PhD in finance. So I'll invest there. So it was this enormous circle, which keeps coming back to, I don't think we took enough blame, kept, keeps coming back to American savers who were looking for the highest yield. So uh, the rating agency was a complete scam. Uh, it's still broken. It's even worse than it was before. And anyone who deserves, anyone who buys a bond based on a rating agency rating deserves everything they get, which I hope is a big fat loss. Now, in, in terms of, again, when I was in the fallout of this stuff, trying to figure it out, a lot of what I concluded, and I just want to see if you think this is at least part of the story, is that, yes, it's it's a profit and loss system. And so the way, you know, quote, pure capitalism is supposed to work is, it's the claim is not that there won't be mistakes on the front end. It's just people who do stupid stuff get weeded out. So, for example, you would have, one would have thought, okay, a bunch, you know, Moody's, Standard & Poor's, they give AAA to a bunch of these derivative things that blow up in everyone's faces or mortgage-backed securities and whatnot. They at least went under, right? And partly, and so the answer is clearly no, they're still in business. And I think part of it is there are government regulations in place that say, hey, like as a bank, you need to have such and such, you know, different tiers of capital or whatever. And so to quality, you know, to satisfy your regulatory requirements in terms of the quality of your assets, you need to have a rating given by someone. You can't just say, oh yeah, my brother-in-law says all this stuff is tier one. You you know, the, the government rules codify like who is an acceptable party to be able to give a rating to this stuff. So I think for, in other words, for a lot of these companies, I think the their their business is, is sort of built in that, you know, they need to be issuing these things because of various regulations. Like you need S&P to sign off on the stuff you're holding to satisfy your reserve requirements. Yeah, which is great, except S&P is completely corrupt. No, no, no. I'm just trying to explain why is it that even after this colossal screw-up, these things didn't all at least go out of business in like some upstart ratings agency that was giving valid ratings captures the market. Why is it that, that I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to explain. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, technically if um, there's a regulation they must be rated, but let me tell you that uh, it's much easier to sell a bond with a AAA rating from S&P than without it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So whether there's a regulation or not, uh, issuers have an incentive to go and pay for that uh, rating right. to buy the rating, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you, as a restaurant, you, you'd have, you have an incentive to go and pay good reviewers to put out good reviews on you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me give you a chance. I want you to elaborate a bit. So it's um, like in the environmentalism arena, a lot of times the, you know, the, the, the green, the tree hugger will say, corporations don't have the incentive for long-term, you know, they're just very short-term and the standard free market guy will come out and say, on the contrary, you know, there's long-term, you know, like if oil, if they project that oil is going to run out in 30 years, then that will give incentive to go find more oil and the price will go up and speculators and that, and as, as opposed to like government, which has a very short horizon until the next election. So why is it, are you saying that in the real world for some reason right now, there does seem to be this culture of, you know, why should CEOs care about just the next, in other words, don't the stockholders realize the best thing for the company? Let me put it this way. I know I'm rambling. 
even if I'm going to sell my stock next year, as long as, quote, the market evaluates stocks correctly, they should look at the long-term prospects and they should determine what the stock price is. So why isn't there a, an affinity of interest? Why isn't everybody interested in doing what's best in the long run for the corporation as opposed to short-term thinking? Because investors don't care about the long-term. Um, and I, I have a solution to make them care about the long-term or to encourage them to care about the long-term. Uh, and you can call it regulation or you can call it tax policy. How about we do this? Um, let's kind of uh, penalize short-term thinking mm -hmm. and uh, reward long-term thinking. So uh, we, we sort of do that with our capital gains tax uh, rules, where if you hold the investment for like a year, you pay a lower capital gains rate. Um, but one year doesn't really get anybody thinking long term, just leads to a lot of gains. Let's try this. How about uh, a sliding scale where um, high frequency traders, uh, you know, these guys who hold the stock for a nanosecond and sell it, they can pay uh, a 99.9% .9 tax rate on their gains. And if you hold your stock for more than 10 years, you pay zero tax. So a sliding scale from, you know, one nanosecond down to 10 years. And I, I picked 10 years arbitrarily. Maybe that maybe it needs to even be, be even longer. But once you are locked into uh, I pay zero taxes over 10 years, you're going to start looking at that company and saying, wait a minute, how does this help us a decade from now when I'm going to sell this stock? And I want to do it tax free. Right. I, I want to be able to like that. That would suddenly get all investors thinking longer term. And that's what we need to do, because right now. Uh, Corporate managements are answering to Wall Street analysts who are thinking about this quarter, um, and Wall Street analysts are answering to mutual fund managers uh, who are demanding that they give them good insights on stock so that they can have a good number this year to have positive inflows into their mutual fund this year and make it grow. We need people to think uh, decades, uh, not years and quarters. Mm -hmm. So my one solution to start with is to increase the holding period where you get rewarded by paying zero tax. That would never fly in the face. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, if I mentioned that to her, her head would explode. Wait, somebody's going to buy a stock, make a profit, and not pay a tax? That's insane. Uh, but I wish she would just think about it for two minutes. She, she doesn't do a lot of thinking. I would just think about it for two minutes. Mm -hmm. Also make, uh, you know, the free market, high-frequency trader types make their heads explode. But I, I see little benefit to the common good from their activity. They always say, oh, liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. By the way, if I'm holding my stock for 10 years, I don't really care about liquidity. And, you know, the function of the stock market is to finance growing corporations. Mm -hmm. It's turned into the casino uh, of liquidity, supposed liquidity. If I'm selling my stock in 10 years and it's a 10 bagger, uh, you know, I, I buy it at 10 and in 10 years I sell it at 100. And you're going to tell me there's a liquidity problem. So I get out at 97. I'm still really happy uh, with right. that $3 hit I take due to less liquidity. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, let's see. What? Maybe we could transition then. I, I know I told you I want to talk about in the in the context of corporate ethics and responsibility. So probably a thing that a lot of my listeners will be familiar with is Milton Friedman's got the... And actually, was there just an anniversary or something? Because they did yeah. some update on it. The New York Times did an entire insert on it and had okay. commenting on it. So for the just the context, so Milton Friedman has this famous argument where he says... Uh, you know, it's becoming chic for corporations to, to show the, their customers how they're being responsible and, oh, X percent of our profits were donating to solve world hunger or whatever, the environment. And Friedman was saying, no, what the corporations have a responsibility to is to maximize value for the shareholders 
period. And then, yeah, as, as citizens, if the shareholders want to donate to help world hunger or whatever, they can. And by because their dividends are going to be as, you know, maximized under this man, corporate management philosophy, they'll have the most money as shareholders with which to go donate to these philanthropic causes. So how do you, how do you, t- I know you said you, you take that in your class and you, you talk about that a lot. So what's your spin on that? Yeah, I, I do a whole class on this with graduates and undergraduates, and uh, we contrast it with Edward Friedman's article uh, where he argued for stakeholder, mm. uh, taking all the stakeholders into account. Uh, and it's interesting. So Friedman says, you know, you got to worry about your, not just your customers, not just about making money, but worry about your suppliers, uh, worry about the um, neighborhoods you operate in, uh, worry about the government. Just to avoid confusion, because you said Friedman, but we got, which you're talking about the Edward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a nightmare, right? Right. The, the stakeholder guy is, says this stuff. Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. I'm constantly asking kids, did you say Friedman or Friedman? It's bad coincidence. So the stakeholder guy argues, you know, you should take into account all of your stakeholders. Um, that's actually a really good recipe to make a lot of money. Uh, so if you're Milton Friedman, you would say, yeah, I should care about my customers and I should be a good corporate citizen because ultimately that's going to make me even more money, which proves Milton Friedman's point. So I actually don't see these things as kind of butting heads. Mm-hmm. I see them as, you know, if you're a free, if you believe what Milton Friedman said, you should consider stakeholder theory as a way of making your profit focus even better. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if, if you're constantly screwing your customers, like we, we joked about laissez-faire books and you said, that's not a great business model. Mm-hmm. You didn't hear all that much about it. One of his stakeholders, which was his customers. Um, and you kind of brought up Milton Friedman's point, like maximize profits. And one of the ways to do that is to care about your stakeholders. This is not mm-hmm. an either or. Mm-hmm. If you're caring about all your stakeholders, it might very well lead to higher level of profits. Um, and by the way, yeah, don't fund. The thing, it's the thing that kills me with corporate philanthropy, which is what brought this up originally with Friedman. Um, if you go, go to the Metropolitan Opera or go to the New York City Ballet, I always open up the, the program and look in the back. You know, And there's Morgan Stanley gave a million dollars to the ballet and Goldman Sachs gave a million dollars to the ballet. And Pfizer giving a million dollars to the ballet. Why do they do that? Uh, they don't do it to help the New York City Ballet. They do it so that other people, other fancy people, when they go to the ballet, can open it up and go, oh, look, Goldman Sachs is making a million dollar donation to the ballet. Think about how, you know, if Goldman Sachs were serious about making the world a better place through their corporate philanthropy, think about all the struggling ballet companies across the United States who, you know, don't even have enough money to turn on the lights, who are trying to, you know, in Toledo, Ohio, are trying to get a little ballet show going. They could spread that around, right, and get a, a renaissance in ballet across the United States or pick your cultural topic, right, and it would explode. But guess what? There wouldn't be any fancy pamphlet that, you know, other muckety-mucks would see and be all impressed by. So they're not going to do that. But if they were serious about corporate philanthropy and improving the common good, uh, they would give it to charities that are starving as opposed to ones, you know, that are uh, mm-hmm. serving caviar at their benefits. Okay, so... It's marketing. For, for right, right. This corporate philanthropy is just a form of marketing. But I, I guess, though, so you're somewhat cynical, but if you were in the board meeting at the Goldman Sachs thing, like, you might be okay with it because you're saying, oh, yes, this is this is good for your business. You, you are arguably are maximizing shareholder value with this particular expenditure. I was assuming that you put me in a straitjacket and you said, all right, we're going to, you know, here we are in the board and board of directors meeting. We're going to make some corp. We're going to make some donations. You got voted down 20 to one, Mr. Brennan. Um, so now, now that, now that we put a gun to your head and we're going to force you to pick a charity that's going to go to, 
Uh, I want mine going to what's going to most improve the common good. I'm still going to hold my vote saying this is not our job. Our job mm-hmm. is to maximize profits by caring about all of our stakeholders. I, 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 corporate philanthropy nauseates me. I don't think corporations should be doing it. Um, dividend it out. Let the shareholder decide himself as opposed to because, by the way, as you've seen, all corporate philanthropy just becomes horribly politicized. Uh, it doesn't it, it goes to um, it becomes marketing where they want their name in the back of the New York Philharmonic's brochure, not to a struggling you know, string quartet. Um, in Durham, North Carolina. It doesn't go there where maybe that mm-hmm. might be actually add more value. And of course, presumably like giving malaria nets to some other third world country probably is on some metric more important than even the ballet company in Toledo. Right. And by the way, so the, 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 these guys on the board of trustees, um, this is also another another pet peeve I have, telescopic philanthropy. Dickens talked about it in uh, Bleak House where Mrs. Jellybee, uh, you know, her kids were, all she cared about was the starving children of Africa. Her kids were running around uh, tearing up London and creating holy hell uh, because she wasn't paying attention to them uh, because she was so busy telescopically uh, focused on the kids, starving kids in Africa. Uh, yeah, corporations love to send malaria nets to Africa. Um, you know, we could pretty much eradicate and millions of kids are dying from malaria around the world. Um, don't hold me to that exact number. It's a lot of kids are dying from malaria around the world every year. Um, But, you know, we do our telescopic philanthropy and send them um, mosquito nets. Uh, Think about what the reaction on any Fortune 500 uh, corporate board might be if there were a malaria outbreak in Scarsdale and kids were just dropping dead. uh, And you and I got together and said, let's send them some malaria nets and tell them to sleep in the malaria net. You know what happened, Bob? Scarsdale's fire department they would re-rig the machines to spray DDT and the, the, the trucks would be going around Scarsdale spraying every single inch of the town with DDT until every living being was killed because the children of Scarsdale were dying. So the whole, the whole concept of tele- telescopic philanthropy nauseates me. And you're, just to make sure I'm catching your point, you're saying because DDT has been banned because of environmental concerns and so that's why this is still an issue? Yeah. Around the world. Whereas if it were on our own, our home t- territory, we wouldn't care about Rachel Carson. We would say, no, we're getting rid of these mosquitoes tomorrow. We're getting rid of mosquitoes because our kids are dying. Right, right. Okay. But if there's people's kids dying, like, oh, isn't that terrible? Let's send them mosquito nets. That right. I got you. Mm-hmm. But they keep dying and we don't care. But, but you know, we, we virtue signal and feel good about ourselves for sending mosquito nets when we could eradicate the problem. Because again, if the problem were here, mm-hmm. we would eradicate it in 15 minutes. It's just like, so in my ethics class, we talk a lot about, a lot about um, the factories that are collapsing in like Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, you know, and a thousand women are killed. We had a fire, uh, the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire um, in the early 1900s in New York. Uh, we have not had another corporate fire since then because we just put in all these distinct um, rules and regulations where there's not going to be another fire that's going to take out. It's like 180 women died uh, in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. But, you know, when a thousand women die in a plant collapse in Bangladesh, like, oh, oh, well, whatever. It's because uh, corporate managements here are happy to do what I call regulatory arbitrage. You know, we've got high regulations here where it would cost too much to make fast fashion. So let's farm it out to Bangladesh where they don't have the same regulations, where when a building collapses, a thousand people die like, oh, whatever. It's the same as a mosquito net thing. Um, As long as American workers aren't dying in the creation of fast fashion, that's okay. If they're dying in Bangladesh, that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's not the same thing, but I also notice it's with um, like in the environmentalism and energy. Like I, I did a lot of stuff on the climate change debate 
And it was very easy to like just recommend, oh, in Africa and these places where you know they don't even have reliable power, they should just rely on wind and solar. Right, right. As you know, like like we're we used fossil fuels to get to where we are in our standard of living, but these people, no, you can't do that. You know, that's otherwise. Be- I, I, I love telling people, turn off your cell phone. You know, don't take the elevator. Like, mm-hmm. let's let's live our beliefs. If you really want, you're insisting that the other these other places do it. You know, practice what you preach. But this yeah. is you know, the, my monthly column is kind of like turned into just pointing out hypocrisy, uh, and that's kind of what uh, I, I, that, that's kind of my writing angle now. I just I love pointing out hypocrisy. That's out there. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about like, chronicles? Yeah, in chronicles. I just yeah, that's kind of what my column has mm-hmm. been doing. I look for the monthly hypo- hypocrisy thing and just go crazy on it. Yeah, I, I will link to the one, the recently you were talking about getting, knowing your real customer or getting the customer right, something like that. That was a, it was a good one. Oh, they know who their customer is. Yeah. They, you don't realize you're not the customer. Right. Let me, let me just, I, I, would, I do want to save time for the foreign policy stuff. Let me, but I do want to bring this up because it was great. So uh, this is the folks, this is an excerpt from Mark's uh, column about the customer. Are you a Facebook customer gladly logging on to share your pictures of your dog flopping in mud or to update your friends on your bunion surgery? Great. Mark Zuckerberg can now quantify and package your data for sale to Chewy.com, the American Podiatric Medical Association. And then I like this one. NASCAR didn't offend its customers when it recently banned Confederate flags at its races, which are attended by many cultural Southerners who treasure their history. Instead, NASCAR's real customers, its premier partners, Coca-Cola, Geico, and Bush, all sighed in relief when the racing organization eliminated the possibility that anyone would ever associate their products with the riffraff who jam up the infield with their RVs and bedraggled tents. <laughs> so, right. No, they're like, the, the, so the, the NASCAR fan, who, you know, you would think that's NASCAR's customer. Mm-hmm. Like, I buy, their, I buy their memorabilia, I go to the races, I watch it on TV, I, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of money in NASCAR. I'm a NASCAR fan. You're not actually NASCAR's customer. NASCAR could not care less about you. They told you, you will come to our meets. Look, you have this cultural you know, attraction to the stars and bars. You're not bringing that anymore because our real customer, which is our advertisers, they don't want their enlightened um, you know, clientele in the Northeast to be horrified that Coca-Cola sponsors an organization where people show up with Confederate flags. So you thought you were NASCAR's customer. You are not. Don't bring your flags anymore. If you do, you're not coming in because we are catering to our real customers. I also mentioned in that article um, uh, during the looting, uh, the, uh, the head of the European painting department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art came out uh, and said, and, and he showed some painting from like revolutionary France. And he said, this is a great painting. This guy was defending, this artist defended what was, what was good about Western civilization. The president of the Met got down on his knees in a craven apology and apologized to the looters, you know, for this horrible comment. Um, I, as somebody who likes to go to the Met and look at their paintings, considered myself a customer of the Met. I have now come to learn that I'm not a customer of the Met. The looters are. Uh, The president of the Met was trying to keep the looters at bay uh, because once they're done tearing down the statues and burning all the books, they will go in. Mark my word, this is coming. They're going to go into art museums and art that they don't like that either is by an artist, you know, that they deem politically incorrect or that shows a, a, a subject matter that doesn't, that offends them. They are going to go into art museums, start slashing paintings, smashing paintings, lighting art museums on fire. That's next. So mm-hmm. if, if you think that, you know, you go to an art museum, you pay your mission fee, you buy something in the gift shop, you're not the customer. Uh, you're just raw material that they package for advertisers and other groups. 
Yeah, that that insight, one of the, is the one, I think I got it from John Goodman originally, I'm not sure, but, so I have this book, The Primal Prescription with uh, Doug McGuff, where we're talking about the US healthcare system. And that was something, once you hear it, it's obvious, but to point out, you know, right now when you go into a hospital or a doctor's office, you are not the customer, you're the patient. The customer's either the government or the health insurance company. Yeah, yeah, you are the raw material. Right, right. you're like an annoyance. Like, you know, just get it, get out of here, yeah. Totally, the, the, the one that really kills me is, um, Parole officers. Parole officers will often refer to the prisoner that they're in charge of as their client. Uh, their job, uh, you and I as taxpayers are the client. Their job is to protect us from somebody who might, you know, be a recidivist and might do something violent. So their job is to keep tracks on the raw material, which is the, the, the prisoner who's been released. But they constantly refer to him as a client. And you and I are just the guy who foots the bill. That one drives me batty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. With the brief time here, I don't want to keep you too long, but let's talk about your dissertation. And so this is American Protestantism related to Cuba. So how did you, why don't you succinctly state what the, what your thesis was and then how did you get into this area? Yeah. So my thesis, uh, well, actually, so the reason I got into it is probably more interesting. I've always been amazed by, uh, this island off the coast of the United States, you know, at, at its closest points, it's 90 miles away, um, but it's so different. Uh, the United States is English, Cuba is Spanish. The United States is Protestant, Cuba is uh, Catholic. The United States has a diverse, diversified economy. Cuba has what's kind of called a monoculture. It's just sugar. Um, the United States is a Republican democracy. Cuba was kind of this oligarchy with this Spanish monarch uh, at its head. So you had three groups, the the, the Spanish royalty, uh, the Catholic Church, and then the Cuban oligarchy. So this really different place that was so close to the United States. And, you know, over the course of their histories, uh, they evolved differently. But there was always this sense in the United States, and, and you actually see this in the early, early 19th century. There were even people writing saying that um, Cuba actually, it's not an island. It's actually the silt that flowed out of the Mississippi River kind of coagulated in the Caribbean Sea and became Cuba. And for that reason, it's actually part of the United States. And then you saw, I think it was John Adams, there's a famous quote. He says, um, just as an apple falls from the tree and rolls back to the stump, so too will Cuba uh, fall, come back to the United States where it rightfully belongs. So, you know, every time we say that, because Americans have this, this feeling that everybody wants to be part of us, every time we would say it or uh, an American thinker would write it, Cubans would say, what are you talking about? Like, we're a separate country. We're not part of you. Leave us alone. They did not appreciate these imperial sentiments coming from the United States. So this went on and on for a long time. And uh, the crack in the hull was kind of the War of 1898, where Cuba was basically in, in, right, right about to boot Spain. And the United States came in at the last second. And, uh, you know, uh, the ball was on the one yard line. And the United States ran into the goal line, ran mm-hmm. over the goal line and said, we scored the touchdown. And Cuba was all excited and said, okay, fine, we're independent. And the United States said, oh, no, 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 no. Now you're under our thumb. Uh, and one of the groups that had been pressing for this the longest was American Protestant missionaries. The missionaries had started kind of going out around the world uh, in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, and Cuba was very fertile ground that they were never able to get into. And they especially wanted to get into Cuba because it was so close and because it was Catholic. And at the time, Protestants viewed Catholics uh, in, in, a, in a really backward way. And one of the theories of Protestant missionaries was that the only way you become a developed country was to become a Protestant country. The only way that you could uh, excel economically was to uh, 
um, buy into the Reformation and Protestantism and do away with Catholicism, and then you will become a modernized country. So one of the main missions for American Protestant missionaries was to just get that process going in Cuba. And granted, it was a backward economy because it relied on one product. So they went down there with these grandiose plans uh, and kicked off the missionary project. And it was it was it was a hoot to research. It was a lot of fun to. I taught while I was down in Cuba doing my research at the University of Havana, um, and it was a great experience. And uh, uh, the Protestant missionaries actually had quite a bit of success. If you look at Cuba today, it's about 12 million people. Uh, it's about 1,500 practicing Jews. Uh, it's about 400,000 evangelical Christians. And the rest of the country is kind of culturally Catholic, but really non-practicing. So the one group that does exist down there is the Protestants. And mm-hmm. put it into the infrastructure that the Protestants were able to build until Castro destroyed everything in 59. Okay. Um, hmm. So, and I know you, in your dissertation, like a lot of it was the progressives, or sorry, the Protestants during the progressive era. And that's something, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, that it's, I mean, it's commonplace to me now, you know, I've read Rothbard's essay on the progressive era and I know, I know more about that, but did it, what I'm trying to say, there was more to the progressives back then than simply, oh, I want to help, you know, like the women who die in factory fires and let's have some common sense regulation about building safety codes. There were like, you know, eugenics and, you know, lots of imperialist tendencies. So I don't, can you speak to that? Is there something there besides, oh, that's just that they happen to go hand in hand? Or is there something about the people who are on fire to go change the world for good? A lot of times they end up using methods that are not from God. Yeah. So we need to distinguish, uh, you know, when you say progressive today, somebody thinks, oh, somebody, you know, all for abortion and, you know, open borders and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. that's small p progressivism, uh, and this was the progressive era, right. uh, last quarter of the 19th century, and that's a cap, uppercase p progressive. And what that was, uh, I'll give you a 30-second kind of history of it. Um, the United States was kind of an agricultural country. Uh, immigration starts really picking up in the last half of the 19th century. We've got the war, trains happen. The United States starts to industrialize and become more of a business economy than agriculture, and people were flowing to cities. And people saw immigrants coming to cities and people from rural areas come to cities. And this group arose, kind of the progressives, saying, hey, through government action, we can, uh, you know, smooth this process and make the world kind of a better place. So you had settlement houses for immigrants. You had tailorism uh, in business, which was timing people. about. It was all about kind of making government more efficient. Um, but the strain of progressivism that really drove Protestant missionaries was the social gospel which was uh, part of progressivism, but that was kind of where they said, you know, we need to get out, uh, you know, spread the Christian word because that will lead to a booming economy. So they were progressives, but they were a very specific part of progressivism mm-hmm. um, that dealt kind of with the social gospel, which is pure progressivism, um, but that was really their animating force. Okay, okay. Um, I, well, let me ask you this. The, the Protestant missionaries who went to Cuba, did they look at the Cubans as like their equal, you know, children in the eyes of the Lord, or was it like they were beneath us and we got to help these, you know? Well, so it was funny. So when they went down there, they pissed off everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pissed off the locals uh, just because everybody got there. They're like, who are these foreign people? They weren't really into Americans when they first arrived. They pissed off the Cuban regime because the Cuban regime saw them as competitors because they were bringing, they weren't just bringing uh, Protestantism. 
They were bringing the American system. They were bringing capitalism. And then they were all, they also really pissed off the U.S. government uh, for quite a funny reason for exactly what you asked. They went down there actually and said, hey, you know that part in the, you know, in our founding documents where it says all men are created equal? We actually buy into that and mm -hmm. actually try and um, push that here in Cuba. At the same time, you know, that all these horrible things were happening here in the United States. And I'm not one of these people who says that all of American history is horrible. But they went down and actually practiced what the founding documents were preaching. So they went down and were pushing for um, all men were created equal. And they started to get an open ear. And the U.S. government said, hey, what are you doing? Like, why do you keep saying that stuff? And they said they would hold up the Constitution and go, oh, we're just doing what it says in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Like, why are you upset? And so they were kind of, you know, pointing out the hypocrisy of the American government. Um, but then it started to become... Hey, Mark, just so I can understand, because the U.S. government was afraid these people are going to start making political demands if you put ideas in their head? Is, is that what they were... Political demands and, you know, people back up. Americans might see, I saw a lot of documents from the U.S. government saying, you know, gee, you know, what if the average American sees, you know, that um, that these ideals can actually be put into action? We might have people start talking about, you know, desegregation or, you know, other right. mm -hmm. documents. You know, we need to have them stop pushing this stuff. They, they don't know what they're pushing. This could create a monster. Right. So uh, the Cubans did that. Uh, the the Protestant missionaries did that when they went down. But um, the most interesting group was the Methodist Church, uh, in, in my view. And what they figured out very quickly was um, you can't go down to pre and preach to people in English who don't speak English. It's going to go nowhere fast. So they actually took, they thought like monarchs, which I'm constantly preaching. They thought like monarchs and they said, let's take the long term view. Um, we need to have a clergy that speaks Spanish and we can't create that overnight. So let's start at the bottom. So they built orphanages and they built schools and they built hospitals. Under the theory that we will educate kids, Cuban kids, we'll give them Protestant educations, and we will basically create a group of Protestant Cuban ministers who can speak to the locals in their own language, and they will do the conversion. We will do the conversion that way. It's going to take a long time, but that's our best bet. I thought it was a brilliant way to do it. And again, you know, it lasted. There are 400,000 evangelical Christians mm. in Cuba today. So, um, you know, build something that's going to last for the long term it works a lot better than going down you know and screaming you know fire and brimstone uh sermons at these people in english and just have it bouncing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay well that's that's great um the last thing i want to throw at you if if you have do you got time for one more train of thought okay okay Next time, all right let's um <laughs> so you talked about you know how you your historical training you know the diplomatic history so i'm wondering can you speak to I guess Don Rumsfeld versus Otto von Bismarck. Who's a better diplomat? Oh, <laughs> what I'm what I'm getting at is, can you speak to U.S. foreign policy and, and not not in terms of like, oh wow, you know, someone died, you know, and, and therefore, but I mean, just in terms of like old real politique, is is what's happening, you know, like the neoconservative, what they've done. Is it like, oh yeah, that makes sense, you know, if you put aside morality, or is it like, no, what they're doing is absolutely insane, you know. That that's the kind of thing I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I, I I couldn't I couldn't be more dismayed by American foreign policy. One of our biggest problems is that we have no grand strategy. Mm -hmm. We we have no plan for what we're trying to do. I contrast it with China's Belt and Road. Right, there's a strategy, and it's working. Um, and can you explain what that is? Sure, Belt and Road. China is basically uh, building um, roads and belts and uh, uh, buying ports all around the world. Basically. Um, you know, if you it, it draw an analogy to the United States in 18, right after the Civil War, 1865, 1875, we had this explosion of railroads 
and canals. Canals were a little bit earlier, but we did this enormous infrastructure build out and the economy exploded. China is basically doing that uh, across the world. And one of the things they've done is, you know, if you look at a map, we talk about three separate continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. It's actually really just one gigantic landmass. Uh, Alfred McKinder said, whoever owns that region, that's kind of where the three of them meet, whoever owns that region owns the world. China is taking uh, McKinderism uh, 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 for real and building uh, highways, trains. They're investing in ports. They, they, they've invested in Italian ports um, in, under the idea that they own the infrastructure. And for a lot of countries that need the help in building an infrastructure, um, you know, this is a godsend for them. The United States at the same time um, is, you know, we're worried about uh, making sure that we're practicing diversity and inclusion. China is building this infrastructure. We don't have any grand strategy. What we do is we play whack-a-mole around the world. We try to export democracy. Uh, you know, we wrote Iraq, a 230-page constitution. Uh, if we're going to go and export democracy, why don't we just photocopy our own constitution and give them that? Right. We, we, we wrote it. We had Noah Feldman write a 230 page constitution, which was idiotic, just a grab bag of goodies for everybody, every special interest group. But again, um, you know, it's not necessarily our job to be the world's policeman. I get a lot of pushback on that. China's playing for the long term. We're just playing whack-a-mole. We're, we, we, we are, you know, Jim, the one smart thing Jimmy Carter said was um, the sum of the special interests is not necessarily the national interest. Our foreign policy is basically driven by special interests. If you look at American foreign policy, just pick two countries, uh, Cuba and Israel. Our foreign foreign policy for both of those countries is three standard deviations away from any other countries. They are bizarre outliers on on in, in regard to both of those countries. Uh, and I'll leave it up to your listeners to explain, to, to think about why that might be the case. But think about special interests and how those are driven. Both of our, our relations with both of those countries mm-hmm. are interests. So we don't have a grand strategy. Um, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we're not, we're not playing the long game like China is. We're doing ad hoc band-aid, uh, spreading democracy projects. And, you know, for anybody who thinks nation building is a good idea, uh, I will point you to the very first American experiment in nation building, which was a colossal disaster. And we're still living with, um, the byproducts of, do you know what it was? No. Reconstruction. Oh, okay. Our first attempt at nation building, a complete utter disaster. We couldn't even do it on the continental United States, and we think we can do it 8,000 miles away. I mean, we have this missionary zeal. It's one of the things that drove me to research missionaries. We have this missionary zeal where we think that, you know, we were, uh, you know, this, empowered by God to go and remake the world in some image. Uh, and so we project, but we could not even do it in our own country. So the, the hubris that it takes to think that you can do it 8,000 miles away is beyond comprehension, but we're not going to, you know, stop trying until we are literally bankrupt we're almost there so i've heard i think jim rogers endorsed this view that you know there was the british empire in the 19th century the american empire in the 20th and that the 21st is going to be the chinese century do you think that's correct so i'm a historian i I look backwards right um, and i i don't and it's hard enough to for us to you know figure out what happened um but i'm with jim rogers on this one i don't make a lot of predictions but uh, i i rant and rave about this in my classes yeah um, and I, you know, I, I actually, so I, I also lectured at Tsinghua University uh, in China through Cornell. Um, and I told them that the last time I lectured to them was last spring, uh, a year ago, spring before this COVID thing. Uh, and I said, I had a room full of graduate students from Tsinghua University. And I said, first of all, I would like to congratulate you. And they all said, congratulate us for what? 
And I said, congratulations, you've won. Uh, you know, Belton Road, it's going to be your world. Your grandchildren are going to be telling my grandchildren what to do. Game over. Congratulations. I said, take, take a bow, uh, you know, to, uh, applaud yourselves. They, the whole room, they applauded themselves. Um, and then the funniest thing was a student, I said, any questions? And a student raised her hand. This was after my lecture. I said, any questions? And she said, uh, yeah, I have a question. You're allowed to say that? And I said, absolutely. You know, in this country, we're allowed to say this. So the sad thing is, you know, I'm allowed to criticize our lack of a grand strategy and praise them. Uh, but the, the, the group that's going to be ruling the waves uh, is going to be a group that where criticism is not allowed. It's going to mm-hmm. be a totalitarian empire uh, that we're going to be staring into the face of, that your grandchildren are going to be answering to. Well, that's a pleasant thought. Um, I, obviously, I could, yeah. Dismiss it, Bob. You can say, you know what, you're a historian. You don't know what you're talking about when it comes to the future. Uh, my response to that is no one does. Oh, no, it's unfortunately, I, I think you're right. I mean, the only thing now that I debate with myself, you know, is, is the timeline, like, you know, how long until it's, and obviously, you know, you could make parallels with our culture today in the Roman empire. And, you know, there's, there's no, no, uh, lack of material there. Okay. Well, I could keep you much longer, but why don't we stop there? So folks, my guest has been Mark Brennan for links to all the things we've been talking about. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 153. Mark, uh, fascinating stories. Thanks so much for joining us. Love it. See you later, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.